Grease is one of Molly and my uh, favorite movies. Uh, Molly, in fact, knows every line, uh, every single line of the movie. You can't watch it with her. It's like she just recites the movie before it happens. Uh, but uh, the premise of the movie is that uh, Olivia Newton-John's character, uh, Sandy, uh, she's a plain, sweet Australian girl, uh, meets John Travolta's character. Uh, he's a greaser and a chain smoker, but they, they meet on this beach uh, somewhere, uh, and they develop this summer romance. But summer ends... Uh, uh, and they go back to school, and so Danny goes back to school, and in some strange twist of fate that I still don't quite understand, uh, Sandy ends up at that school as well, and so they bump into each other one day, and they're both uh, shocked and surprised to see each other there, and uh, Danny is uh, thrilled to see Sandy, who he has grown to love over the summer, until he realizes that his greaser friends, the T-Birds, are behind him. Uh, and then he realizes that, well, she's not quite cool enough for this T-Bird uh, gang that he hangs out with. Uh, so he gave her the cold shoulder, even though uh, he really liked her and she was devastated. So uh, what's a girl to do? Uh, in the ice cream parlor, uh, she kind of sidled up to the varsity sweater-wearing jock uh, to make Danny Zuko uh, jealous, uh, flirting with him. And so uh, that had an effect, desperate to win Sandy back, Danny joins the track team, uh, which is the absolute antithesis of what Danny Zuko was, uh, trying to impress Sandy. But look, guess what? It worked, right? The, the jealousy worked. They started dating again. But then later in the movie at the school sock hop, uh, Danny and, and Sandy go together uh, and they're dancing together. But then uh, this woman named Cha-Cha, uh, who you would not bring home to mom, uh, cut in uh, and danced with them both uh, and uh, kind of knocked Sandy out of the way and Danny and Cha-Cha win the dance contest. And now uh, it was uh, Sandy's turn to be jealous. And so uh, trying to win his heart for good, uh, she showed up at the graduation carnival dressed just like him, uh, decked out all in leather, uh, high heels, and smoking a cigarette, uh, trying to become him as he had tried to become her, uh, each trying to please each other, trying to become uh, what the other one wanted. Well, in the end, uh, they end up together, they drive away all happy, and uh, what's interesting, though, uh, in, the, in the movie is, is this theme of jealousy and how jealousy can provoke people to very strange behavior, and we see it throughout the movie. And jealousy is a prominent theme in our passage today. In fact, the main point of our passage today is that Paul hoped that uh, his ministry to the Gentiles would make Israel jealous and provoke his countrymen to respond to the gospel. Now, there's a difference, of course, between human jealousy and godly jealousy, right? We don't want to confuse the two. Uh, God is not jealous like a jilted lover, right, uh, operating in uh, insecurity uh, and fear. Uh, God is jealous of Israel not for God's own sake, but for Israel's sake, because Israel is his chosen people. And so his uh, jealousy is not a sinful jealousy, it's a godly jealousy. Uh, and so that's the difference. But uh, Paul's ministry philosophy, as, as we come to the passage, is quite simple. Uh, it's really the same philosophy that Danny and Sandy had, uh, and, and that is by any means necessary. Uh, if jealousy is the tool that I need to use, jealousy is the tool that I use. Uh, by any means necessary, including jealousy, uh, Paul would inspire and provoke his, Christ, or his Jewish friends to believe. Paul just wanted his Jewish brethren to be saved. And last week we saw 
that Israel's fall is not total. Remember, we talked about this. Uh, Israel's fall cannot be total because God saved Paul, a Jew. Uh, so he's not rejected all of Israel. Uh, he saved Paul. He also uh, proved it by saying that God foreknew his people. Anyone that God has foreknown, uh, he will also uh, ultimately save. Uh, and he did that, and he does that for his Jewish people. And then we saw in the Elijah illustration uh, that God always preserves a remnant. He did it in Elijah's day, he's doing it in Paul's day, and he's doing it in our day. So God's rejection of Israel is not uh, total. And this week and next, we'll see that Israel uh, is not uh, rejected by God uh, finally either. Uh, Israel's rejection of God is not final and vice versa. Uh, so let's read verses 11 through 15 and we'll start to look at it. Uh, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So it kind of hinges around this verb, to fall. What does it mean, to fall? Uh, the tense of the verb suggests that it means a final falling, uh, a, fa a falling that uh, implies foreverness. Uh, the Net Bible, in fact, translates it, uh, did they fall as to have it be irrevocable? Is it an irrevocable fall? And Paul used his usual explanation. This is actually the 10th time in the book uh, that we see Paul utter this explanation. In Greek, it's meganoito. It means, may it never be. Of course not. Have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? Uh, something like that. That is the extent of the exclamation uh, to deny this claim. But I want us to think for a minute this morning about why it is impossible for the Jews to stumble beyond recovery. And the first thing that I want us to consider is that God must fulfill his covenant with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17, God promised Abraham land, seed, and blessings. And that promise, those promises that God made to Abraham, those were unilateral promises. That means that God is the one doing the promising. Abraham is not promising anything in response. He didn't promise to do anything. Only God promised to do something. And I also want us to understand that God's promises were unconditional. He didn't say to Abraham, if you do this, then you'll get land, seed, and blessings. No, he just promised him land, seed, and blessings. He didn't require anything of Abraham. God bound only himself to the covenant. Now, in a bilateral contract, there are two parties. Each one uh, covenants to do something in the contract. Uh, they're both obligated to do something. And if one of them f fails to fulfill a condition of the contract, well, the other party is relieved of his duties under the contract. Uh, but this is a unilateral, unconditional contract. And, and God can't be finished with Israel because he bound himself unilaterally and unconditionally to Abraham and his seed. And not only that, he repeated those promises to Isaac and to Jacob, again, binding himself, reiterating his covenant to them. And God has not yet fulfilled all of the elements of this covenant. He's not fulfilled the land promises. We know that Israel, even at its height under David and Solomon, never possessed 
all of the land that God promised that they would have. And plus, God promised that they would inhabit the land forever. And we certainly know from history that Israel has not inhabited the land forever. In fact, now they very tenuously hold on to a very small percentage of the land that God has promised to them. Now, that promise that God has made has not yet been fulfilled, and it's because of Israel's unbelief. We know that, but that doesn't matter in an unconditional covenant. Uh, God will make them believe at some point in the future, and he will fulfill his promises to Abraham. So God must fulfill his covenant with Abraham. God must also fulfill his covenant with David. Remember the covenant that he made in 2 Samuel 7, that one of David's descendants, descendants would sit on Israel's throne forever and ever in a place where Israel's enemies would no longer disturb it. And this is part of the land and seed blessing that God promised to Abraham a thousand years before. Uh, and so what we see is that from, uh, from Abraham's many seed, the one seed, Jesus Christ, would come, uh, and he would fulfill the promises of 2 Samuel. But again, uh, God's covenant with uh, David was unilateral. It was unconditional. Uh, if anybody could blow a covenant, David could blow a covenant, right? Murder, adultery, if anything was going to blow the covenant, that would do it. And yet, God's covenant is unconditional. It didn't matter what David did because God promised uh, unconditionally to David. Uh, now, Christ came from the line of David, uh, and he, uh, he certainly uh, sits on a heavenly throne right now, but he doesn't sit on an earthly throne. And God's promise includes a place where uh, Israel will have peace from its enemies. So God will fulfill his covenant uh, in the future with David uh, when Jesus reigns on the earth. So God has a plan for Israel. Uh, and there are some people, uh, there's, there's this theology called replacement theology that says that the church has replaced Israel now uh, and, and that God is now giving uh, the blessings that were promised to Israel to the church because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And that, that uh, theology, replacement theology, was very popular uh, back before 1948, before Israel was, uh, was reestablished as a state, they're scattered all over the world. And so it, it made sense to a degree. Uh, it's impossible for God to fulfill this covenant because Israel will never have a home again. But nothing is impossible for God, is it? And now Israel has a home again. Uh, so what happened was uh, people uh, took these promises then uh, that God made to, to Israel, to Abraham, to David, and they spiritualized them. Uh, they, they, they treated them as though they were figurative speech and, and substituted the church uh, for Israel. And so, uh, but now that Israel is back in the land, is it, is it hard to imagine that God could fulfill these promises? Of, of course not. Uh, so one problem, of course, with replacement theology is Romans 11. Uh, you know, what, what do we do with this? If you hold to replacement theology, uh, it's clear that God is not done with Israel in chapter 11, despite Israel's current unbelief. And another problem with the view is that it, it really fails to recognize the unconditional nature of the covenants that God made to Abraham and to David. He must fulfill them, and he didn't require anything of Israel in order to fulfill them. If he doesn't fulfill them, he would have to act contrary to his nature. He would have to go against the truth that he is uh, if he were not going to fulfill those covenants. And another problem is that God made his covenants uh, and his promises to Israel. He didn't make those promises to the church. Israel and the church 
are two separate entities. Uh, we're going to talk about the new covenant a lot more next week, but let's remember that the new covenant is between God and Israel. It's not between God and the church. Uh, we Gentiles, the church, we share in those covenant blessings to Israel, but we have not replaced Israel. Uh, so God will save Israel, but for the time being, he has set Israel aside for specific purposes. So let's talk about what those purposes are. God's first purpose is that, he, uh, that Israel's transgression is for salvation of the Gentiles. Uh, you know, God could save the Gentiles any way he wants to, right? He could save the Gentiles through Israel belief or Israel unbelief. Uh, Israel didn't believe, and so God is going to save the Gentiles that way. And when the Jews rejected their Messiah, God offered salvation to all people uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, and God, uh, when, when Paul was, was preaching, he always went to the Jews first, and when they rejected, then Paul went to the Gentiles. Uh, and so uh, God was not surprised by Israel's rejection of the gospel. In fact, he planned it. His purposes were to use that to bring uh, Gentiles in. He used the uh, Gentiles, uh, Jews, Jewish unbelief, to save Gentiles. But God's purposes don't end with just saving of the Gentiles. Uh, what I want us to see in these verses, we'll have, to, we'll have to follow it closely, is that there are three cycles in these verses of uh, Jewish rejection of the gospel, followed by Gentiles receiving the gospel, and then blessings coming back on Israel uh, at some time in the future. So I want us to see it first in verses 11 and 12. Notice this. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be by their transgression. So now we have Israel's rejection, right? And now here comes the second part of the cycle. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? So there it is, boomeranging back to uh, the Jews later on. So Jewish rejection, uh, Gentile receiving acceptance, and then in the future, uh, Israel receives. Israel's transgression is its failure to believe. God set aside Israel to bless the Gentiles. And the book of Acts mentions lots of Gentile conversions, right? We have the Ethiopian eunuch through Philip. Uh, we have the conversion of Cornelius and his household through Peter. We have Lydia and the Philippian jailer through Paul. And many other conversions of Gentiles uh, throughout the book of Acts. And uh, since the book of Acts has ended, how many Gentile conversions have there been? Uh, everybody in this room, I'm, I'm pretty well sure. Uh, and certainly the whole world. Uh, of Gentile believers. So uh, Israel's rejection of the gospel has resulted in uh, multitudes of blessings to the Gentiles. Israel's transgression, Paul calls riches for the world. Uh, an interesting phrase. What does it mean? Salvation from the penalty of sin, for one. Rescue from God's wrath, for another. Eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. Uh, the, the riches go on and on. We could name them all day, and they're available to the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, not everyone in the world is elect, so not everyone is going to receive those blessings. Uh, not everyone will believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins and rose for the dead to, for, to purchase their salvation. But for those who do, well, the riches are immeasurable, and God chose to bless 
the Gentiles by setting Israel aside for a time due to their unbelief. But God has a purpose in saving the Gentiles too. God's purpose in saving the Gentiles is that Israel will be saved through their jealousy of the Gentiles. You know, jealousy can be a very strong motivator. I wonder how many of you ladies have employed this trick in your life where uh, uh, you weren't quite sure that you had the heart of your true love, and so you did something like Sandy to try to make your true love jealous. Uh, And then he would profess his undying love to you and fawn all over you, and you would get the man of your dreams because of jealousy. Uh, It's the oldest trick in the book. and men do it too. And why is it the oldest trick in the book? Because it works, right? It it, it has a proven track record. Well, uh, God showered his blessings on the Gentiles, and the purpose is that the Jews will become jealous, and they uh, will be saved. Now, for the time being, uh, by God's providence, uh, this particular method is not working wholesale for Jews, although individual Jews are being saved. Uh, But in the future, God will make it work on a wholesale basis when masses of Jews are going to come to the Lord and they are going to be saved. And then it seems that their blessings may even be greater than the Gentiles' blessings. Uh, If if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So enormous blessings. Um, So that's the first cycle. Verses 13 through 15, we're going to see the cycle repeat itself. Paul is basically going to go through the same cycle of Jewish rejection, Gentile blessing, and then greater blessing for Israel in the future. And this time, the starting point is going to be his own ministry to the Gentiles that he discusses. Uh, We we have it up on the screen there. Uh, You see how he says uh, that in the beginning, he's speaking to the Gentiles, and then he wants to provoke his fellow countrymen and save some of them, even though they have rejected So remember, in the beginning of chapter 9, when we were back a few months ago studying chapter 9, Paul proclaimed his love for his Jewish brethren, right? He said he would gladly trade his own salvation, if it were possible, for theirs. But his direct approach to the Jews wasn't working, right? He went to them first in the synagogues, but they would not receive him. And so it was only then that he turned to the Gentiles. And we see that throughout the book of Acts. So the the direct approach wasn't working. He was hoping that maybe the indirect approach would work. If I can can save some Gentiles, maybe that will provoke some uh, Jewish folks to to, uh, salvation. And salvation of any Jew would magnify Paul's ministry. Uh, It would be like getting two for the price of one if you were able to get a a Gentile to be saved and then carry a Jew who was jealous along with them. And so uh, that's what Paul was hoping for, by his ministry to the Gentiles to provoke some of his uh, Jews to jealousy. But in the meantime, God is saving uh, Gentiles. He was doing it then. He's doing it today. Now in verse 12, remember he called uh, Israel's transgression riches for the world. Uh, Here he says that Israel's rejection is reconciliation of the world. Uh, In Paul's day, that meant the world meant the Gentile believers who were coming to faith in droves. Reconciliation, uh, such an important biblical word. It means the end of hostility, hostile relations, the restoration of friendly relations. In the Bible, reconciliation with God means the end of our separation uh, from God caused by our sin. And before God saved us, before God reconciled us to himself, 
We were enemies with God. And Jesus fixed that for us. Romans 5, 8 to 10. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Uh, the concept of reconciliation, uh, Jesus died on our behalf, uh, bridging the gap between us and God that is caused by our sin. And now we can have peace and harmony with God as a result of reconciliation. Second uh, Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. So we are eternally separated from God before he reconciled us to himself by providing a savior to us. And when we receive Jesus Christ, God reconciles us to himself. Now, reconciliation, I'm sure you recognize, is an accounting term, right? Uh, reconciliation uh, is an accounting term. We reconcile our accounts with a vendor by paying the balance in full, right? And he stamps paid in full, you have no balance, your account is reconciled. We reconcile our bank accounts by balancing our bank accounts. We be sure, we're sure that our debits equal our credits, everything zeroes out, our bank account is reconciled. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, God reconciles our account. He zeroes out our sin debt by taking our sin and applying it to Jesus' account. And God's wrath against us is now satisfied because Jesus paid for it in full on the cross. And that's how much God loves us. And God offers that reconciliation to everyone. Everyone can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, sadly, the Jews, uh, by and large, uh, at this time, have rejected uh, God's offer. But the result in the future, when God calls this mass of Jews to himself, uh, they're going to receive the, the blessing that we're going to, that we already have received, and, and perhaps even greater. Uh, Paul called Jewish acceptance he called it life from the dead. And that should be a familiar term to us from the gospel. Uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, a very important passage, uh, Paul wrote this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we understand that salvation is all God's work. It's a gift from God by his grace. We were dead. Dead people don't do anything. They can't do anything. Nothing to contribute to their own salvation. God has to bring us back to life. He has to resuscitate us from our death. And that's just what he did when the Holy Spirit quickened our spirits and, and caused us to seek him. And then we received Jesus Christ and he indwelled us uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, God has rescued us from eternal death and he has moved us to eternal life. 
John 20, uh, 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has uh, passed out of death into life. This is the greatest gift imaginable, and it's available to all people, Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews will respond in huge multitudes in the future. So let's just take a breath, summarize so far. Uh, the first point is that God must fulfill his promises to Israel. The covenants are uh, irrevocable, they're unconditional, they're unilateral. Secondly, God has two purposes in presently setting Israel aside. One is to save the Gentiles in the present, and the other is to have the blessings boomerang back on to Israel when they believe in the future. So now, Paul wants to go about uh, providing some kind of scriptural evidence for how we know this is true. How do we know that God is not finished with Israel, that their stumbling is not permanent, but only temporary, and that God will remember his covenants? And so uh, Paul uses a couple of illustrations to show that Israel is the first fruits. And from the first half of Romans uh, eleven sixteen, he says, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is holy. Now, we have to go back to Numbers chapter 15, verse 20, and surrounding verses uh, to get the context for this. Uh, this is uh, Moses writing to the Israelites before they enter, enter into the land of Canaan. And God is instructing them how they are to present offerings to him. Uh, and God commanded Israel to take a cake from the first of their dough uh, and then present it to God as an offering. This is after uh, they enter into the land of Canaan and had reaped their first harvest. So by offering the first part of the dough to God, God sanctifies the whole lump of dough. He sanctifies the entire harvest. So if the first piece of dough is holy, the whole lump is holy. Now, the first piece of dough represents Abraham and the patriarchs and the covenants that God made to them. God made promises to them that he must fulfill to keep his word, to keep his promises, and to preserve his character. And so the lump then represents the people of Israel. Because the patriarchs are holy and accepted by God, so will their descendants be. Uh, so that's Paul's first illustration. If the first piece of dough is holy, the whole lump is holy. And then the second illustration, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And here now, of course, is the famous olive tree illustration that Paul uses. And before we read it, I just want us to recognize that there are two themes in this illustration. The first is that Israel is going to be blessed again. And one more time, we're going to see the cycle of Jewish rejection, Gentile acceptance, and then Israel's acceptance again and blessing in the future. Uh, in the metaphor of the olive tree, some branches were broken off. Uh, that's unbelieving Israel. That's Israel's rejection of the gospel. Uh, but God grafted in some other branches. Now, this is what grafting is. Grafting is when you take a branch and you cut a slice uh, in another branch and you uh, graft it in, you insert it into that other tree, you probably put tape or, or something around it, and these branches then begin to grow together. Now, that branch that's grafted in, that's the Gentiles. God grafted them into the olive tree. But God will also graft Israel back in again someday too, and the blessings will be great for them when he does. So that's the first theme. God is going to bless Israel in the future. The second theme 
that I want you to notice here as we read it is that uh, a warning against Gentile arrogance. Uh, we have to be careful about Gentile arrogance. In general, yes, but particularly, particularly toward our Jewish brethren. So let's keep these, both of these in mind as we read the passage, uh, 11, 17 to 24. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand in faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted into nature, grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? A long passage, but you read it in full to, to grab the whole illustration. Uh, the Old Testament uses the olive tree as a symbol for Israel on multiple occasions. Uh, Jeremiah 11, for example, Psalm 52, Hosea 14, uh, the olive tree is the root of God's blessings to faithful Israel, first to the patriarchs and then to the faithful Jews. Now, the broken off branches represent unbelieving Israel. God gave Israel the covenant, the law, the patriarchs, the blessings, but not all believed. God broke those Jews off for their unbelief and separated them from the blessing. Now, God grafted in others who were not natural branches, but wild branches, and the wild branches represent believing Gentiles uh, whom God has grafted into the tree and has given the blessings of Israel. Now get this, God has not uprooted the olive tree and replaced it with the Gentile tree. Uh, he's only cut off unbelieving Jews from the tree and grafted believing Gentiles in. And that's why Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. The root is Israel. We believers as Gentiles, we share in the blessing. So we see that there is a future blessing from Israel, and we'll come back to that in a second. I think the main point of this illustration, though, is to warn Gentile believers against being conceited and arrogant. There is no reason, as Paul says, for any Gentile believer to be conceited or arrogant or to lord salvation over our Jewish brothers. The root supports the branches, not vice versa. We don't go to the Jews as though, uh, you know, we have something to offer uh, other than Jesus Christ. There's nothing in us as Gentiles. The root is them. Uh, and so uh, God has broken off branches for unbelief, and, and, and Gentiles have become partakers of the blessing uh, the, of the rich root of faith that was Israel's. 
And so Paul wants Gentiles to, uh, to understand that they have not replaced Israel. God has done a beautiful thing for the Gentiles, but Israel is still God's chosen people, still the chosen nation and the source of riches that the Gentiles now enjoy. And so Paul is sounding a warning like across the millennia, don't be arrogant. There is nothing in you that can warrant your own salvation. And if we boast in our salvation, it's only proof that we don't understand God's grace and our need for it because we think there's something in us that's worthy of salvation. And Paul warned his audience that uh, if you pursue salvation by works uh, other than by faith, God will cut you off too, just like he did with Israel. And so uh, a lot of people read this verse and think it's a loss of salvation verse. This is not a loss of salvation verse. Uh, a person who has received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior uh, and has received the Holy Spirit can never, ever lose his salvation. God's saving faith always perseveres to the end. But it is a general warning that if you, uh, as the Gentiles, if you Gentiles, uh, depart and think that you can achieve salvation by your own good works like the Jews did, uh, God can cut the Gentiles off too. Uh, and, and it's a general warning that, that God could do it and would do it, because if he did it to the Jews, he'd certainly do it to the Gentiles. And now, at the end of the illustration, we come back again to Israel receiving the blessings that God had intended from, for them from the beginning. Paul says, that God will graft Israel back into the tree if they do not continue in unbelief. And it will be a perfectly natural thing for God to do. Israel is God's chosen people. If God can graft in wild branches, the Gentiles, you and me, certainly he can, he can graft the natural branches back in. And so it's not a question of if he will do it, if he has the power to do it. Of course he does. It's a question of when his timing is right. When will he be willing to do that? And so it's not a question of if. It's only a question of when. God does have a plan for Israel in the future. So let's think about a few applications. The first one is this. We Gentiles, we need to be concerned about Israel. You know, we tend to live in our little Gentile bubble, and I'm as guilty as any of us, uh, and we forget that there are a world of Jews out there, uh, not so numerous as the Gentiles are, but a, a lost world uh, of Jews out there who don't understand uh, the New Testament. They don't understand the gospel. They don't know why uh, their Messiah hasn't come, and they failed to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And we can help them with that. Uh, you know, the United States has historically been uh, Israel's strongest supporter and ally, and you know, that may change with the new administration. I really don't know, uh, but I think it might. Uh, and I don't think that would be a wise decision. Uh, many people wonder why we even bother with Israel since they're such a secular nation, so seemingly opposed to the gospel. Uh, and so the, the answer is, the only answer that, that we ought to side with Israel is that even though God has set Israel aside for a time, Israel is still God's chosen people, and it's never a good idea to oppose the people of God. You can read the whole Old Testament and see the history of what happened to people who opposed God. So while we wait for the day when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and God then turns back to Israel uh, to bless them, we should be praying for Jews that we know to believe. Uh, Israel as a nation is not yet saved, but you know, I'm sure you know a saved individual Jews. It's possible. We can reach them. You and I can reach Jews with the gospel. 
Uh, and so uh, it's a strange irony when you think about uh, just the last, uh, what, 3,000 years, uh, 4,000 years since Abraham, uh, Israel was told to bless the nations, and they didn't. Uh, in the first century, Jews would not share their blessing with the Gentiles. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and we're reluctant to share our blessings with the Jews. And this is not how God would have it. Uh, God wants us uh, to talk to the Jews, and he wants us to look appealing to them so they'll become jealous so that they'll want what we have. So be concerned for Israel. And secondly, don't be arrogant. Salvation, as I've said, is all by God's grace. We cannot earn it. We have not earned it by anything we do. There's nothing we can do to earn his favor. We must believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. And even that faith that we have is a gift from God. He gives it to us. So we shouldn't be arrogant toward anyone, especially the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. You know that, right? Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was their Messiah uh, that God has graciously allowed us to share in. Now, anti-Semitism is running rampant these days, as you know, uh, and it's evil. Back in law school, uh, I heard a guy say uh, to this Jewish lady that we hung around with, he said, you killed my savior. And we were all aghast, horrified, right? Uh, obviously, this is not a Bible-believing Christian who said it, uh, but we all killed our savior by our sin. Uh, the Jews uh, were certainly complicit, uh, but we were all complicit. Our sin, yours and mine, killed our Savior. So don't look down on Jewish people. Be moved for them. Recognize that God has grafted us into their blessings, and remember that God has a future for Israel. And since he does, it would be wise for us to get aligned with God. Uh, just praise God that he saved us. It's an, it's an act of grace, a miracle to take our hardened hearts and soften them so that we can receive uh, we haven't earned it, so there's nothing for us to be proud of. So be humble, be faithful, pray for the salvation of the Jews, and pray that you and I will remain faithful. Amen, brothers and sisters. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your grace is offered to everyone. And Lord, though it seems that Israel uh, is lost, and presently uh, perhaps they are, uh, but not all, Lord. You have your elect, you have your remnant, and Lord, help us to reach those. And Lord, help us to long for the day uh, when you will save them uh, en masse, uh, Lord, when multitudes and multitudes come to you. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to be thankful for the grace that you've shown us. Show us that there is nothing in us that has earned it, Lord. It's all by pure grace because you loved us as much as you do. And Lord, help us to love the rest of the world with the same love that you love us. And may we be witnesses in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.